Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. Your Southern Mysteries is an independent podcast. It's made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can join Southern Mysteries on Patreon and you get a little something in return. You can hear more than 60 episodes in the Southern Mysteries archive, and you also have an option to support the show and hear exclusive monthly episodes that are new this year called The Lesser Knowns, stories of lesser-known figures related to major historical events. Join me on Patreon today and catch up on all the episodes you haven't heard at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Blacks and whites and other Americans who want to understand the meaning of the American experience need to remember lynching. That's James Cone. He was a noted theologian who wrote extensively on the experience of being black in America and the history of lynching. It's part of our history that is very uncomfortable to talk about, but the silence has been deafening for generations of Americans who lost loved ones during this era, loved ones who were rarely named or acknowledged. To understand this part of our history, it's important to know what led to the acceptance of racial terror, to tell the stories of some of the oldest true crime cases in this country, and the brave people who led anti-lynching campaigns in an effort to end the violence and save lives. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of the color line murders in the American South. The acceptance of racial terror lynchings in the South was on the rise in the late 19th century due to people blaming financial problems on the enslaved who had been freed at the end of the Civil War. Many white people expressed their belief that black men women and children were getting too much freedom and organized efforts to reduce that freedom. The segregation and disenfranchisement laws known as Jim Crow were a collection of state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation. Beginning in the 1890s, the laws affected almost every aspect of daily life, mandating segregation of all public spaces Whites only and colored signs were constant reminders of the enforced racial order. And those laws remained in place until 1968. Jim Crow laws were meant to return Southern states to the antebellum class structure by promoting white supremacy and marginalizing black Americans. The white majority in the South literally wanted to turn back time and return things to what they considered to be the natural order of white supremacy. Black communities and individuals that attempted to defy Jim Crow laws were often met with violence and death. To understand the American South during Jim Crow, you have to understand racial terror, the violence of lynching. Lynching was a way to spread fear and affirm separate but equal laws. This act of violence made it clear to any black person who attempted to do something like 
drink out of a whites-only water fountain or enter a whites-only bathroom, that they were less than the rest of society and they could be killed for any attempt to change the social norms. Lynchings became a popular way for white people to resolve the anger they felt towards black people. A lynching is defined as three or more people, a mob, putting someone to death beyond the authority of the law for the purpose of tradition and social control. In the late 19th century, lynching wasn't a new practice in the United States. It was the motivation for lynching that shifted. Lynching began in the Revolutionary War years as a form of local justice that wasn't condoned by a formal court. There were few courts established at this time, and the practice was common early in American history. Toward the end of the 19th century, around 1886, there was a profound shift around lynchings in America. The number of black lynching victims surpassed the number of white victims. Lynching had become racialized, a way to show people they were undeserving of first-class citizenship in the United States. According to the Equal Justice Initiative report, lynching in America between 1877 to 1950, more than 4,400 black people were lynched in the South, a historical period of racial terror known as the color line murders. The color line refers to the role of race and racism in history and society in America. In the late 19th century, an evolving scientific theory called social Darwinism led to myths being perpetuated about how societies evolved. The most common myth was that white people were superior to black people. That led to a justification to suppress the advancement of black people in all areas, driven by white people's fear that the society be brought down by people of color rising to and possibly surpassing their level in society. Color line murders had common factors and justifications on the part of the mob doing the killing, one of the most common being the fear of interracial relationships. With the growth of social Darwinism, new ideas were formed about women's sexuality and the idea of purity of the white race. Consensual interracial relationships often led to accusations of rape and resulted in lynchings. False accusations of rape became a common justification for lynching. As Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, has noted, if you dig deep, into some of the accounts of lynching, frequently there wasn't an allegation that something sexual actually took place or even something that would be classified today as assault. In a lot of cases, it was a gesture of intimacy. A black man wrote a note to a white woman or a black man said something flirtatious to a white woman or a black man didn't recognize how socially inappropriate it was for him to interact with a white woman. Even that would be characterized as an assault and labeled as rape in the lynching era. Something as innocent as a Christmas card 
could lead to a lynching. 15-year-old Willie James Howard was known to his friends and family as a young man who had a pleasant and friendly nature. His classmates in Live Oak, Florida, called him jolly and lovable. Willie James loved Christmas so much that in December 1943, he sent Christmas cards to co-workers at his local Five and Dime store. Willie sent a card to every co-worker, including a 15-year-old white girl named Cynthia Goff. Willie expressed in the card that he hoped someday white people and black people could be allowed to like one another. Because as he wrote to Cynthia, I love your name. I love your voice. For a sweetheart, you are my choice. Willie James never imagined anyone else would see that card. That's the innocence of being 15 and totally smitten with someone. You can't imagine that writing the words he wrote could get you killed. But in 1943, in the South, Willie James was right. Black people weren't allowed to like white people. Cynthia reportedly was offended when she read that card. A black boy expressing his affection for a white girl was considered intimate and out of line. When Willie James heard he offended Cynthia, he wrote a note of apology on New Year's Day, 1944. Cynthia never replied. Instead, she handed the note to her father, Philip Goff, along with the Christmas card Willie had given her. On January 2nd, 1944, Philip Goff and two of his friends went to Willie James' house and demanded to see him. Willie's mother begged the men to leave, but they pushed her, threatened her life, and dragged her son away. Philip Goff and his friends then went to the workplace of Willie's father, James Howard, and they kidnapped him. Willie and James were driven to an embankment on the Suwannee River. The river is known for its shallow waters and its limestone banks. James Howard was forced to watch as three white men bound the hands and feet of his son and made Willie James stand near the edge of the water. They pointed guns at this 15-year-old boy and told him he had a choice in how he died. He could jump or they could shoot him to death. Willie James jumped into the cold water of the Suwannee River as his father was forced to watch at gunpoint. When police questioned Philip Goff, who was a former state legislator, Goff acknowledged he and his accomplices had taken Willie Howard from his home, but said they only intended to discipline him and put him in his place. All three men admitted they bound Willie's feet, but said they did it so he couldn't run away. Goff claimed Willie James became hysterical and chose to jump in the river and kill himself. James Howard was asked to sign a sworn statement corroborating Philip Goff's account of what happened to his son. Fearing for his own life, because he had been threatened that he would be next, James Howard signed that statement. Three days later, James and his family were forced to flee town Knowing their lives were in danger, they sold their house and fled to Orlando. An attorney visiting Live Oak, Florida over the holidays 
brought the lynching of Willie James Howard to the attention of the NAACP. Thurgood Marshall demanded the Florida governor, Spessard Holland, call for an investigation into what happened to this young man. The governor sent Philip Goff's sworn statement about the death of Willie James to Thurgood Marshall and said the case would go before a grand jury. But he also pointed out there was probably difficulties involved because there would be testimony from three white men and a 15-year-old white girl against the testimony of one black man. He was right. A grand jury was impaneled, but they refused to indict. Other common factors of lynchings in the American South were social transgressions, defined by the mob carrying out the lynching. Now, social transgressions could range from a black man making eye contact with a white man or a black woman walking on the same side of the street as a white woman, which was considered to be outside of the established social norms at this time. Lynchings based on allegations of crime were often commonplace, with a victim being accused of anything from theft to murder. The issue of the victim's guilt would not be addressed in the courtroom. A mob would gather and serve as judge, jury, and executioner. Lynchings were also used to socialize white children. There were many spectacle lynchings in which large groups were encouraged to gather to watch a black victim hang and in some cases burn. And white children were encouraged, sometimes made, to attend and participate in lynchings. During this era, Southern white children were taught to accept and embrace racial violence. And the message of white supremacy that went along with the violent act of lynching. Children between 6 and 10 years old attended a lynching in Kentucky. They brought wood and tended to the fire used to burn the victim. The violence of lynching, the hate it took to carry out this torture, it was viewed as an act of pride for men who praised one another for it. In many cases of lynching, there were photos taken of the victim after death. Brutal photographs were turned into postcards that were sold in drugstores and mailed across the country as propaganda to further the supremacy of the white race. Messages on the back of the postcards noted the date, sometimes the name of the victim, and boasted of the lynching. There were organized efforts to stop lynchings and activists who risked everything to raise awareness and work to pass legislation that would end this brutal practice. The anti-lynching movement began in the 1890s. The movement was spearheaded by the National Association of Colored Women, the National Association of Colored People, the Council for Interracial Cooperation, and the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching. These organizations worked together to use education and the media of the day to raise awareness of racial violence happening across the country and work to secure federal legislation against it. Women played a critical role in the movement, with teacher and journalist Ida B. Wells Barnett leading the charge. As a young black woman, Wells was determined to be an activist. 
She lived in Memphis, Tennessee in May 1884 when she was ordered to leave her seat on a streetcar and move to a segregated car. She refused and was ejected from the train. In March 1892, the horror of racial terror lynching affected her deeply when three young black businessmen she knew in Memphis were abducted by a white mob and murdered. The white business owners were outraged that their black competitors had found success in business. Ida B. Wells responded with newspaper columns that would, in time, become a pamphlet known as Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases. Wells documented lynchings and denounced white Southerners for failing to act against and call for the end of this hateful practice. In challenging white supremacy, Ida B. Wells became a target of hate. In May 1892, her newspaper, The Free Speech, was attacked by a white mob and burned. Wells continued to stand strong and fight for a legal end to lynchings. And there were other women with strong, fearless voices who became active in the movement. Angelina Grimke and Georgia Johnson were writers who used poetry and literary outlets to expose racial terror lynchings. By the 1920s, a growing number of Southern white women who were disgusted by the brutality of lynching and the defense of the practice joined the anti-lynching campaign. Jesse Daniel Ames and many other white women worked for the Council of Interracial Cooperation. They focused on education and tried to change opinions of white Southerners, which they hope would lead to the end of lynching. Georgia writer Lillian Smith used her work, the 1944 novel Strange Fruit, to link lynching to the larger issue of racial exploitation in the American South. Writer, educator, and activist, James Weldon Johnson wrote about lynching in the New York Age and organized silent protest against racial terror when he was leading the NAACP. We know what happened in Shibuta, Mississippi in December 1918 because of an investigator with the NAACP, Walter White. Shibuta, Mississippi is in rural Clark County near the Alabama border. The town was founded in the early 19th century and served as a trading post on the Chickasaway River due to its close proximity to a nearby Choctaw community. Shibuta was never considered a thriving town. At the height of its population in 1910, there were a little over 1,100 people living there. But the population has steadily declined, now down to less than 500 people due to the migration of black Americans. Men and women who were driven away from their home because of what you don't see as you walk down Main Street in Shibuta, a bridge that's just a little east of downtown. The reddish-brown truss beams of this 130-foot-long Shibuta Bridge hover 30 feet above the muddy water of the Chickasaway River. There were six documented lynchings carried out on this bridge. Four of them in 1918, when two young pregnant women and two young men were murdered there. 
E.L. Johnston was a white married man who was an itinerant dentist of sorts. His father was a retired dentist who owned a farm in Alabama. And it seems 35-year-old Johnston tried to follow his father's footsteps, traveling around Alabama and into parts of Mississippi to offer dental services. This venture failed, and Johnston went back to work on his father's farm. During the course of his travels, he was known to have many affairs, and he was known to assault women. One woman he assaulted was a 20-year-old black woman named Maggie Housie. Maggie became pregnant, and Johnston moved her and her 15-year-old sister Alma onto the family farm and gave them jobs as farm laborers. Johnston then began forcing himself on 15-year-old Alma, who also became pregnant. Two black men, 20-year-old Major Clark and his 15-year-old brother Andrew, worked on the Johnston farm with Maggie and Alma. Major and Maggie fell in love, planned to marry. When E.L. Johnston learned this, he was enraged, confronted Major, and told him he would never marry Maggie. Days after the argument, on December 10, 1918, E.L. Johnston was shot and killed. Major was immediately accused of the murder, and papers reported he confessed before he was arrested and charged with the murder. Also arrested, Major's brother Andrew and Maggie and Alma Housie. All of them were accused of plotting to kill Johnston in cold blood. But there would be no trial. Newspapers reported that on December 20th, 1918, a white mob went to the Shibuta jail where the Clark brothers and Housie sisters were held. The jailer, Deputy Sheriff William Crane, was called out onto the street and ordered to release his prisoners. The Clark brothers, Housie sisters, and the jailer were forced into a car and driven out of town. Crane would later say he had been released before the mob reached the Shibuta Bridge. The mob forced Major, Andrew, Maggie, and Alma out of the car, tied nooses around their necks, and as all four pleaded for mercy, one by one, they were thrown over the side of the Shibuta Bridge. The bodies of Major, Andrew, Maggie, and Alma were left hanging from the girders of the Shibuta Bridge. The white undertaker refused to accept the bodies for burial, but eventually a wagon was sent to the bridge. The bodies were cut down and transported to a funeral parlor, but their families refused to claim them for burial. No one in the black community would bury the bodies because some of the victims' family members had been told the mob would be lying in wait for them and they would be next to swing from the hanging bridge. 24 hours after the Clark brothers and Housie sisters were lynched, they were buried in unmarked graves just outside of the Whites' only cemetery. A coroner's inquest was seated, and the ruling handed down was that the two men and two women had been lynched at the hands of persons unknown. When news of the lynchings reached Walter White, who had been working for the NAACP for about a year, he immediately prepared to travel to Shibuta to investigate the murders. Walter White was able to use his fair skin, 
blue eyes and straight hair as an advantage when he was in the South. As an investigator, he could pass as a white man and talk to white people about crimes, get them to open up. But he identified as a black man and could talk to members of the African-American community. When he traveled to Shibuda, he posed as a traveling salesman and hired Robert Church, a white private investigator from Alabama, to come to town and question locals. Church told locals he was investigating the murder of E.L. Johnston because he knew if he asked white men questions about the murder of another white man, they would be willing to talk. And some of them were more than happy to share detailed information about their brand of vigilante justice and how they killed the Clark and Housie siblings. Church and White uncovered many inconsistencies with a version of events that had been published in newspapers in the days following Johnston's murder and the terror lynchings at Shibuta Bridge. First and foremost was that the murder of E.L. Johnston was, in the words of Detective Church, surrounded in mystery. Even Johnston's own white family believed a white man murdered him, knowing Major Clark would be blamed for the death. Detective Church found there was a plan from beginning to end on the day of the lynching, a plan between the white mob and police in two different counties. Locals shared with the investigator they had even planned transportation for spectators who wanted to see it all go down, made arrangements for the transportation of the prisoners to the bridge where they would be lynched. When the Clark brothers and Housie sisters were arrested, they had been moved to two different county jails several miles from Shibuda. When the Clarks were jailed in Meridian, Mississippi, police tortured Andrew Clark until he agreed to confess to plotting with his brother to kill Johnston. Three days later, the Housie sisters and Clark brothers were transported back to the Shibuda jail for a preliminary trial. Over the course of those three days, the plan to lynch all four had been set in motion. A report detailing the lynching notes, automobiles began pouring into the little town, as well as other vehicles and individuals on foot. By this point, it seems likely law enforcement knew an uptick in pedestrian and vehicular traffic meant trouble. Deputy Sheriff Crane, who was the jailer on duty that day, said he had been overtaken by the mob. But Church's investigation revealed no effort was needed to convince Deputy Crane to surrender those prisoners. When the mob arrived at the jail, Crane walked into the street, put out his hands, and allowed them to handcuff him, take his keys, and go into the jail and take the prisoners. All of this came with no protest from Deputy Crane and no attempt to protect his prisoners. Darkness was falling over town, which is what led to the next part of the plan. As the mob continued to grow in numbers at the jail, another group went into the powerhouse and shut off all light from Shibuda. They plunged the town into darkness, knowing anyone asked to identify the leader of the lynch mob would have to say, it was dark and there was no way to see. Walter White submitted his findings in a report titled An Example of Democracy in Mississippi. This report was referenced by the NAACP when they telegrammed the Mississippi governor 
noting that 62 lynchings had been documented in 1918 alone. Seven of them were in Mississippi. They demanded the governor work to end lynchings in his state. A reporter from a Mississippi paper asked Governor Theodore Bilbo if he had an official response for the NAACP. The governor replied, quote, I will tell them, in effect, to go to hell. Six documented lynchings were carried out on the Shibuta Bridge, four in 1918, two in October of 1942. Two 14-year-olds, Ernest Green and Charlie Lang, were walking down Highway 45, just south of Shibuta, when they crossed paths with a 15-year-old white girl named Dorothy Martin. Hours later, the boys were arrested and accused of raping Dorothy. Authorities in nearby Quitman and Shibuta told reporters that both of the boys confessed. And that was the story that appeared in newspapers across the South. But NAACP investigators and reporters did their due diligence. They investigated and learned what really happened that day. Dorothy Martin had crossed paths with Ernest and Charlie on Highway 45 as she was walking home from school. The boys were looking for scrap metal, and the kids started talking to each other, possibly played together, since they were all neighbors and knew one another. The truth of what transpired between the children that day will never be known, because two of them would be dead within a week. A passing motorist, a white man, saw the three children together and drove back into town to tell the sheriff and Dorothy's father that Ernest and Charlie were harassing this white man's daughter. Dorothy's father demanded the sheriff arrest the boys for assaulting Dorothy, and Quitman Sheriff Faulkner complied. Ernest and Charlie's families were denied access to them and told if they wanted to see them, they needed to come up with a $1,000 bond. On October 12, 1942, Charlie Lang's father, Hilliard, was walking towards town planning to ask some people to help him come up with that bond money. A lumber truck pulled up next to him. In the back of the truck lay two corpses with nooses around their necks, Ernest Green and his son, Charlie. Earlier that day, Charlie Lang and Ernest Green had been forcibly taken from the Quitman jail by a mob of angry white men who were said to overpower City Marshal G.F. Dabbs. The mob drove the boys to the hanging bridge where they tortured them before the men tied a noose around their necks and threw them from the bridge. When news of the lynchings reached the desk of Mississippi Governor Paul Johnson, he had a different reaction than Governor Bilbo following the Shibuta lynchings of 1918. Johnson publicly stated he would do all he could to ensure these young men got justice, saying of the lynchings, such acts are spots upon the good name of Mississippi, and the better class of people here condemn this as wrong. The first FBI investigation of a lynching in Mississippi was ordered by the Attorney General. But no one talked. No member of the mob that lynched the boys was ever identified. Unlike other lynching sites across the country that are unknown 
or lynching trees that have long since died, the Shibuta Hanging Bridge is an uncontested and known location of multiple brutal lynchings of black Americans. Yet, unlike other color line murders, there has been no memorial, no official acknowledgement of the victims. Some argue it's in the past and should be forgotten. For some, it's too painful to talk about or just easier to ignore. But as historian Jason Morgan Ward has noted, one thing you cannot hide is a 131-foot-long river bridge. One of the 800 six-foot monuments at the Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, acknowledges and lists victims of lynching in Clark County, Mississippi, including Ernest Green, Charlie Lang, Andrew Clark, Major Clark, Alma Housie, and Maggie Housie. Maybe someday, their names will be acknowledged and memorialized on Mississippi soil. The anti-lynching movement worked hard to create federal laws to outlaw lynching. In the 1920s, the first anti-lynching bill to be voted on by the Senate failed to become law. But it wasn't considered a failure. It led to greater awareness of the horror of lynchings. And in turn, Americans began to condemn them. This year, over 100 years after the first anti-lynching bill was voted on by the Senate, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act became law. It's designed to hold people accountable for any conspiracy to commit a hate crime that results in bodily injury or death. The lynching era led to the death of thousands of black Americans, and there were more victims Families of those killed suffered economically and socially. They were forced to migrate to northern or western states after their loved one was lynched. Due to fear and sometimes threats, they would be next. That migration permanently changed the demographics of America. The pain of the legacy of lynching hasn't ended. The pain of the injustice has never gone away and wounds are opened again and again when people refuse to acknowledge the history of lynching, the challenges of race relations in America, and how we treat one another. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can view sources and more about this episode in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. I'd encourage you to read Jason Ward Morgan's book, Hanging Bridge, Racial Violence and America's Civil Rights Century. It was a primary source for this episode, and it's an important read not only in understanding and learning more about the history of the Shibuta Bridge, but the bigger picture of civil rights and race in the 20th century. If you're new to Southern Mysteries, thanks so much for checking out the show. If you want to hear more, you can hear the Southern Mysteries archive of more than 60 episodes, along with exclusive Southern Mysteries shorts and the lesser knowns, episodes you can only hear when you join me on Patreon. You can catch up and hear these stories when you join today at patreon.com 
slash Southern Mysteries. You can also support this independent show by sharing these stories on your social channels and rating and reviewing Southern Mysteries wherever you listen. Thanks for that. And thanks so much for listening.